All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys today. My name is Matt Carter. Um, I am the pastor of preaching here at the Austin Stone. <clears throat> I've got a little bit of a cold, so I apologize if I cough. And um, before I get started today, I want to give um, a shout out to over 200 of our students that are here with us in our worship service today. Would you guys give them a hand? Two things I want to say to you. One, I know you've had a really, really long weekend. Do not sleep during my sermon. I will see you. And two, I just want you to know how proud of you guys I am. I was sitting right over here. I could hear you singing louder than anybody in this room. And I want you to know something. You guys keep leading out in worship. I promise you, we will follow you. All right? I promise you. All right. All right. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Um, We are continuing our series today called Jesus, the True and Better. And uh, I want to talk about for a second why we're calling the series what it is. I know Holly and Pastor Holly shared this last week. (coughs) But from the moment that sin entered into the world, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God put into motion his plan, and that would be to send to us a Savior, a Messiah who would come and pay the penalty for our sin and reconcile us back to God. And so after God made this promise to Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the people of God for millennia have wondered, who's the Savior going to be? Who's the Messiah going to be? What's he going to look like? What is he going to do? And throughout the years, God would send leaders to his people that were not the Messiah, but were meant to point us to the Messiah. They weren't the Savior, but they were meant to give us glimpses of the coming Savior. And then, right, when the time was right, God finally did send Jesus, his son to us, the Messiah, the Savior, who would die on a cross, pay the penalty for our sin that was committed in Genesis chapter 3 and from the rest of history and would reconcile us back to the Father. Now, what we realize is that now, on the other side of the cross, we can look back, and hear this, we can look back at the, at the lives of men like Abraham and Moses and David and folks like that, and we can realize that the primary purpose of their lives was not just to, you know, read about them in the Old Testament and, and, and gather some moral principles from them and then one day, you know, make movies about them. That was not the primary purpose of their lives. We realized that the primary purpose of their lives was to point us to the person of Jesus. And so that's why we're calling this um, Jesus, the true and better. And today we're looking at Jesus, the true and better Abraham. Abraham. Now, (coughs) Abraham, you can think about Abraham's life this way. An analogy would be, it's kind of like uh, going to the airport. Um, if, If you don't really know where the airport is and you need to drive there, you can pretty much head in the general direction of the airport and you'll eventually find your way there because they do such a good job of giving us signs. You're cruising along, there'll just be a sign. and It'll have a little airplane up at the top and you know I gotta go this way. And then you keep going and eventually there'll be another sign and it'll have a little airplane at the top and I know I keep going this way. And eventually there'll be uh, like an arrow that says go right and then you turn right and then the next thing you know you're standing there and the airport is right there. That's exactly how the life of Abraham works. Literally every main event of his life, when you look at it, is meant to point us and direct us eventually to the place where we're standing there staring at the person of Jesus, the true and better Abraham. 
Now, let me say this. There, there's actually, believe it or not, a lot of debate out there about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of people think, a lot of scholars think, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are completely disconnected. That with the exception of the Messianic prophecies and like Isaiah 53 and things like that, that the Old Testament and the New Testament don't have really much to do with it. And I, after preaching through the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, fundamentally disagree with all that. I have never understood the gospel of Jesus Christ better than when I preach through Genesis. I'm convinced that the Old Testament screams the name of Jesus from almost every page. And we're going to see that in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Let me tell you what's going on here. There's a guy named Abram. He's living his life. He's doing his thing. God's eventually going to name him Abraham. But we're going to see the first interaction, the very first one, between God and Abraham. God's just going to walk up out of the blue on the scene thousands of years before Jesus ever shows up. And in Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in the very first words that comes out of God's mouth to the person of Abraham, we begin to see the foreshadowing of the coming advent of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Abraham, God says, I want you to leave your country. Abraham, I want you to leave your kindred. I want you to leave your father's house. And I want you to go to a foreign land, which I'm going to call you to go to. Church, how does that give us, from the very first words, a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ? Well, there's echoes of it in John chapter 1, verse 1 in the New Testament. John describes Jesus this way. He says, in the beginning, speaking of the beginning of time, he says, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Now look at verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Jesus left heaven and he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. At some point in time in history, God looked at his son, Jesus, and said, son, I need you to leave this country, heaven. I need, to, I need you to leave your kindred, this, this heavenly family. Son, I need you to leave your father's house. I need you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came out and said it in John chapter 16, verse 28, when Jesus, with his own words, said, I came from the Father, and I've come into this world. And so the words that God speaks, listen, the words that God speaks to Abraham on that day and in that moment were absolutely for Abraham, but they were also meant for you. They were also meant for you to point you to the true and the better Abraham who would one day leave his country and leave his kindred and leave his father's house to go to a foreign land and die for your sin and for mine. Now look at the, look at the second thing that Abraham, or rather God says to Abraham, because again, we're going to see the foreshadowing of this coming savior in verse two. God says, and I will make of you a great nation, Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I will bless you and make your name great, he says, so that you will be a blessing. 
He comes up to Abraham. He says, hey, I need you, Abraham, to leave your country. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave your kindred, go to a foreign land. And when you do, when you do this, Abraham, I am going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a great name. And church, that was absolutely true for Abraham. Abraham, there, through Abraham came the nation of Israel. It's here today. That was an absolute true statement by the Lord. Abraham has a great name. We're talking about him right now for crying out loud. But make no mistake, make no mistake, although those words were absolutely true of Abraham, as we're about to see, God was intentionally through his life pointing us clearly to the one who would build an even greater nation through him and through whom would be the name that is above every name and that is Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says it. And being found in human form, Paul says about Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Abraham's, or God said to Abraham, leave your country. I'm gonna make for you a great name. It's pointing us to Christ who has the name above every name. Now look at the third thing God says to Abraham because when he does, he removes all doubt. For us, that he is pointing us to the Messiah, to the Savior of Jesus through the life of Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. In verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then watch what he says. He says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, church, here's the thing. If God was only speaking to Abraham in that moment of that time and it was only meant for him alone, that statement, all families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham, is not true. It's a lie. If God was only referring to Abraham, because I want you to notice what he says. God does not say, Abraham, by you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God says to Abraham, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And what God is meaning when he says, in you, all the families are on the earth are going to be blessed, what he's referring to is not Abraham. He's referring to one of Abraham's descendants. God's saying, Abraham, through one of your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. In church, that is an absolutely true statement. There's only one man in history. There's only one man that's ever lived who could make the claim that he has blessed every family on the face of the earth, and it's not Abraham. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's going to be a song that you and I talk about worship. There's going to be a song that we know we're going to sing when we get to heaven because the Bible says that we're going to sing a song. You're in this story if you're in Christ Jesus today. If you've believed into God, you're in this Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. But let me tell you about the song we're going to be singing around the throne of God one day in the future. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song. That, that's they, that's you and me. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God, from uh, a people for God rather, from every tribe and every language 
and people and nation. You and I are going to stand around the throne one day of God and we're going to be singing, Lord, worthy, Jesus, worthy are you because by your blood you ransomed a people of God for God from every tribe and every tongue and every single nation. And that song that we're going to be singing is not singing about Abraham. We're going to be singing about Jesus. From the very first words out of Abraham's mouth, it's crystal clear God is pointing us to the person of Christ. In church, I could go on and on and on. Tell you story after story after story of how the events of Abraham's life point us to Christ. I could talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And when I say the word Sodom and Gomorrah, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind is the story of this really sinful city that was doing all this crazy stuff and God looks at the city and he says, you know what, Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city because of their sin. I'm going to punish the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham asked a crazy question of God. He said, God, would you be willing to not punish their sin? It's the first time that question had ever been asked. God, would you be willing to not punish their sin? And you know what God said? God said, yes. I'm willing to not punish their sin. Do you remember what the condition was? That God said he would be willing to not punish the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? God said, if you can find a righteous man in the city. If you can find one without sin... If you can find the righteous man in the city, I am willing to not punish the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what makes that unbelievable is that is the very first time in all of history and of all of scripture, God was willing to not punish sin. You see it in Adam and Eve, God punishes sin. You see it with Cain, God punishes sin. You see it in the flood, God punishes sin. And then Abraham said, God, would you not punish sin? God said, yes, if a righteous man could stand in the path absolutely pointing us to the day where God would be willing to not punish your sin if a righteous man can stand in the way and that righteous man's name is Jesus. I could talk about the story of when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And and God says, "I, I want you to take Isaac to this mountain where I show you and sacrifice him there to me. And when Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain, Isaac asks a question. He says, Dad, as he sees the altar, he says, Dad, where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? That's a great question. He's walking, he says, like, Dad, I see the altar. I don't see a lamb. And then Abraham looks at his son and makes a fascinating statement. He says, Isaac, God is himself will provide for us a lamb. God himself will provide for us a lamb. And if you just stop for a second and you think about that, that's unbelievable. Either one, he was lying to his son and just trying to placate him, or in somehow, some way, Abraham knew that even if I go through with this, then God's somehow, some way going to provide for us a lamb that's going to one day make all this stuff right. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was talking about thousand years later when he's sitting there baptizing people and he looks up and there was Jesus walking up. And John the Baptist said, hold everything, everybody, because behold, He is the what? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. 
And I could just go on and on and on and on and on and tell you story after story of how the life of Abraham just is screaming the name of Jesus. But there's something else I want us to consider today. And I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. And here it is. Not only is God using the life of Abraham to point us to the person of Jesus. Okay, I want you to hear this because it's arguably more important than that. But God is using the life of Abraham to show us how you and I are saved from our sin. How we go to heaven when we die by believing God about the person of Jesus. Okay, so God's not just doing all these cool stories to go, hey, it's paving the way for Jesus. That's awesome. But he's also through the life of Abraham showing how you can be saved from your sin and how you can go to heaven when you die through believing, having faith in the person of Jesus. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. In 15 verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And God said to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, and listen to what Abraham says to God. He says, Oh Lord God, what, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, God, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God comes and he says, Hey, I'm going to make a great nation for you, of you. I'm going to make um, a great name for you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Abraham raises his hand and says, Okay, God, that's great, but there's a problem. I don't have a son. I don't have a son. And so watch what God says in verse four. It says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. That's Abraham. And God said to Abraham, this man, talking about Eliza or whatever his name is, shall not be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. God said, hey, um, I know that you're a little freaked out right now about the whole great nation, great name, blessing all the families because you don't have a son, but I want you to know, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a son. Check out the stars, Abraham. Try to count them. That's how many descendants you're gonna have. And so God looks at Abraham and says, I'm gonna give you a son. And, and here's the thing. When we hear that, we're like, well, that's no big deal. He's God. He can, he can make a son be born of a virgin. It's not a big deal for him to give Abraham a son, right? It's no big deal. Well, actually, it's a really big deal, and here's why it's a big deal. Because when God came to Abraham and said, hey, you're going to have a son, Abraham was al- and Sarah, his wife, was almost 100 years old. The promise, listen, the promise that God gave to Abraham and Sarah was impossible. It was impossible. Now, I want us to watch. This is a really cool part of the Bible. Turn to Genesis 18 quickly. I want us to look at Sarah's reaction when she finds out that she's going to have a son in her very, very old age. Watch, watch her response. This is a really, really crazy story in the Bible. Genesis 18.1. Verse 1, it says, And the Lord appeared, so God shows up again to Abraham. And the Lord appeared to him, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent. That's Abraham. He sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he, that's Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So Abraham and Sarah are just hanging out by their tent in the heat of the day. And what the scripture just said is that God walks up. Now, here's why that's crazy. For a couple of reasons. One is, again, this is pointing us to Christ. 
This is the very first time that God shows up in the flesh. Every other time you've seen God up to this point, God's speaking in the fire. Um, God is speaking from the clouds. God's speaking not as an 11-year-old boy, if you saw Moses this weekend. He's just speaking, and all of a sudden, God shows up in the flesh for the very first time, pointing us again to the day where Christ would come to the flesh. And we know Abraham knows that he's God because Abraham throws himself down at his feet. Now look at verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour and knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried and prepared it. And in verse 8, he says, And he took curds and milk and a calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Did y'all catch what's going on here? God's eating a steak. That's crazy. God's eating a steak. So God's hanging out, eating a steak. God in the flesh. And then God is going to turn to Abraham and he's going to begin to speak. In verse 9, then they said to him, that's Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely, and then God drops the promise on him again. God said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now watch what Sarah's doing. It says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind them. So, so God's sitting there eating a steak and he looks up from his steak and he says, Abraham, where's your wife? He says, she's in the tent. And then God looks at Abraham and says, hey, I want to remind you this time next year, you are going to have a son that I promised you. And then the Bible stops right there in verse 11 and reminds us of just how impossible that is, the promise that God just gave Abraham and Sarah. In verse 11, it says, God, God, it's like the Bible just reminds us, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And then the scripture said, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. The Bible reminds us that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Let me translate that for you. She's gone through menopause. She is, it's physically impossible for her to have a baby. Now, you hear all that? You see what's going on? Watch what Sarah does. Let's read verse 10 again. And he said, I will surely return to you this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Sarah, or rather Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Watch Sarah's response in verse 12. The scripture says, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. That's one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible right there, if you're paying attention. So God comes and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. I told you, I promise you, you're going to have a baby. The first thing out of Sarah's mouth is, I'm worn out. Right? I love that, how she describes herself. I'm worn out. And then she says, and have you seen my husband, right? (laughs) Have you seen this guy? She says, my Lord is old. I'm worn out. My Lord is old. Are we really going to have pleasure? Now, let me translate that for you. God says, I promise you. No, really, really, really. You're going to have a son. She says, I'm worn out. He's old. And the idea of even having sex is just like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen much less having a baby. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Church, for the first time in history, God shows up in the flesh. God God himself comes walking up 
walking up, the, the, the God that created the heavens and the earth, with the sound of his voice, walks up and says, you're going to have a son. And what was Sarah's response to the promise of God? She laughs. She laughs. She hears the promise of God. Listen. And she did not believe God. Why would you not believe God about his promise? And the only reason I can think of that you would not believe God about his promises is because in your brain, your circumstances are bigger and more powerful than your God. That's the only reason that God could show up and say, here's what's going to happen. And you're like, no. It's because in your brain, your circumstances are more powerful than your God. And that's why when God speaks, she laughs. But watch what Abraham does. Watch how Abraham, listen, this is, this is huge. This is what it's all, it's all about. Watch what Abraham does when he hears the impossible promise of God. In Genesis chapter 15, don't, four, don't turn there, just watch this. This is God for the first time speaking the promise of God to Abraham. In verse four, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. and said, That man, Elizer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse 6 and watch Abraham's response to the impossible promise of God. Verse 6, it says, and he, that's Abraham, and he believed the Lord. Amen is right. And he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, unlike Sarah who heard the promise of God and because the circumstances of her life were more powerful in her mind than her God, she did not believe the promise of God and she laughed. But Abraham heard the promise of God and the scripture says he believed God. And because of that, the Lord looked at him and said, righteousness is now yours. It's one of the most important phrases in all of scripture. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's so important that Paul talks about it in Romans 4. In Romans 4, 8, listen, this is such a great verse. Paul is talking about the importance, the radical importance for you and for me of that moment in history with Abraham and God. In, in Romans four eighteen, Paul says of Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. In hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which was spoken by God, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. When, when Abraham first heard the problem, or rather the promise of God, he doubted, just like Sarah. Scripture says he looked at, at the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But watch what he does. He says in verse um, 9, or 19 rather, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. I love verse 21. And being fully assured that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. That's it. You want to know what saving faith looks like? That's it. That I am fully assured that what God has promised, 
God is able to perform. That's faith. And here's the thing, church. Here's the thing. Why would God set it up in such a way that God gives a promise, Abraham believes God about the promise, and the result is God gives him righteousness? Why is that? Why all the way back in the Old Testament does God set that up? Promise, belief of promise, resulting in righteousness. It's because God was clearly pointing us to how you and I can be reconciled from our sins and how we can receive righteousness. God gives us a promise about his son. We believe the promise. And it's reckoned to us as righteousness. And in case you don't believe that's what God's doing, that's exactly what Paul says he's doing. Listen carefully, almost done here. Romans 4.20, yet... With respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, God was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now watch what he says in verse 23, because he starts talking to you and me. In verse 23, he says, Now, not for his sake only, not for Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited to him, Verse 24, but for our sake also, Paul says, to whom it will be credited as to those who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. Paul says the reason all that happened was to show us how you and I also can be credited righteousness. We've got to believe God about his son. Very plainly what that just said, very clearly and plainly, the claim of the scripture is this. The claim of the scripture is that whether or not you will go to heaven when you die, it's going to come down to one thing and one thing only. It's not going to be how many times you went to church. It's not going to be how many times you prayed. It's not going to be how many times you read your Bible. It's not going to be how well you kept the Ten Commandments. It's not going to be how good of a person or bad of a person you were. The claim right there in Romans 4, the scripture is saying, that whether or not you go to heaven when you die, it's going to come down to this one thing and one thing only. Do you believe the promise of God about his son? And that's it. If you do believe the promise of God about his son, it will be credited to you as righteousness. If you do not, it will not be credited to you as righteousness. And so for those of you in this room that have been coming to church for 50 years, and those of you who are brand new, I want to just take a few seconds, and I want to remind you of what the promise of God is about his son. And then as I'm saying it, you can decide whether or not you want to believe God or not. Here's the promise of God about his son. Jesus left heaven and came to this earth in the flesh. He left his country. He left his father's house. And he came to a foreign land in the flesh. And when he did, he lived a perfect life. He was completely righteous. He never sinned, which qualified him to be the one man that would stand in the way between God's wrath and our sin, like in Genesis. And he died on a Roman cross. God poured out his wrath on his son instead of us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of our sin. 
And then if that weren't cool enough, three days later, he rose from the grave. And not only did he conquer sin, but he rose from the grave and conquered death. And that if you will believe God's promise about his son, that he paid for all your sin and rose from the grave, the scripture says your sin will be completely forgiven and you will be adopted as a son or daughter of the king. And then when you die, and you're gonna die, when you die, you will leave your body and you will be present with the Lord where you will enjoy him forever and ever and ever. That's the promise of God. That's the promise of God. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, do I believe God or not? Sarah heard, and she laughed. And unfortunately, some of you are going to respond that way. You're going to hear the promise of God that your sin can be completely forgiven. You're going to go, well, I've sinned too much. There's no way God could do that. Yes, you can. Some of you are going to think, well, I'm too far gone. God, God doesn't know what I've done. Well, no, he does know what you've done and he, he put it to death on the cross. Some of you are gonna hear the promise of God and it's just gonna sound ridiculous to you and you're gonna laugh. But I'll say this to you. Sarah laughed, but do you know she did have a son? The promise of God came true. You know what she named that son after he was born? She named, the, named him Isaac. You know what Isaac stands for in the Hebrew? Stands for laughter. That's what it means. She named the boy laughter to remind herself every time she saw that boy, every time she saw him running around, every time she saw him growing, she would be reminded that although I laughed at the promise of God, God is a God who always keeps his promises. And some of you in this room, you heard the promise of God And today is the day you're going to believe. You heard the promise of God about his son and everything inside of you is screaming out, that's the truth. And if that's where you are today, I want you to know that all in the world you have to do. The scripture says this in Romans 10, 9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe God about the promise of his son and it will be given to you as righteousness. And the best way you know how, just do that today. For those of us in the room who are believers, I hope that phrase maybe means more to you right now than it ever has. That's not a name of Christians, it's, it's our identity. We believe the Lord about Jesus. We put faith in the Lord about his son Jesus. I I got to this point in my preparation and I didn't know what to do with y'all. We believe, so I got nothing else to do but just worship God, amen? He's given us righteousness because of our belief in Christ. And so let's stand together right now. Let's do that, stand together. And I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna sing a couple of songs. Both of them are songs that are Christmas songs. And both of them speak of this amazing truth that that God from the very beginning has been preparing the way for Jesus. As we sing them, don't sing a Christmas carol. Sing a worship song to your God whom you believe and has given you righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I just want to confess right now with my mouth that you are Lord. And I believe, God, with all of my heart 
that you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness that I will be given righteousness not because of what I've done, good or bad, but because of your faithfulness in my life. I love you, Jesus. I pray for those who put their trust in Christ today. God, I pray you would change their life for your glory. And so we pray this in the name that is above every name, and that is the name of Jesus. Amen.